Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We want you to join us to keep these mics on and the conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep going. It's really simple. There's a link. It says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. Click the link. Throw us the price of a fancy cup of coffee and maybe a scone once a month. And you'll be helping keep an independent left-leaning podcast platform going into the future. Think of it, think of it as a bit of activism. But it also has lots of rewards. For example, yesterday evening, uh, Roman and Owen from The Ditch hosted a Twitter space with myself, Echo Chamber co-host Martin, Polly Doyle and Spice Bag in relation to the attack on their journalism by Tonish to Michal Martin. And I have the audio of that and it's available right now for our members. There's also a great conversation Rory had with one of our favourite economists, Michael Taft, on what we should be doing with this huge budget surplus and how we could focus it on building sustainable jobs and helping tackle the climate and housing emergencies. Always great to listen to Michael, and he's one of my favourites, and I'm not just saying that because we have a shared love of Randy Newman. So why don't you click the link, join us for a month. You don't have to stick around if you don't think it's worth it, but I think it is. Thousands of you are listening. We just need some of you to help us pay it forward. And if you're not in a position to join us, just spread the word. There's no better endorsement we can get than you recommending us to one of your friends as I say all the time, no ads, no sponsors. We rely on you. Thanks for all the support. I'm going to stop rabbiting on. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lost in Implementation podcast where we ask the hard questions over what has or has not been implemented in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement 25 years after the historic agreement was reached. Delighted to be joined today by fellow podcast host Sam McElwain and Elaine Crory, the women's sector lobbyist, to have a discussion on equality of opportunity. Now, equality of opportunity under the Good Friday Agreement runs like a thread throughout it and includes the right to equal opportunity in all social and economic activity, regardless of class, creed, disability, gender, or ethnicity. Sam, Elaine, do you think we have that? I think I'll let Elaine go first. Um, the sh- really short answer is no. Um, the more complicated answer is no in multiple ways. Um, by which I mean, that's been kind of interpreted in practice as a, uh, does this thing very obviously prevent certain groups of people getting involved in whatever the thing might be. So every new policy, every new a piece of legislation um, is assessed against those criteria. Is there an obvious block? It's not a very um, intelligently uh, applied test. Um, very often, it's it's very uh, black and white. Is there a, a legal block? Is there, um, you know, a, something that is is written in the text that needs to be amended so that there isn't a legal block? It's not really practice. It's not really seen as equality of opportunity it has to be a meaningful. Um, opportunity to take part as opposed to something that reason that actually prevents you in law from taking part. So it's it's not really done with the understanding of the lived experiences of these groups of people. Mm-hmm. It's done really very much on paper and it's treated as a tick box exercise. Um, unless there's something obvious, it just flies under the radar. Yeah, I suppose yeah. the um, agreement does include, well, it included the establishment of the Equality Commission, obviously, which we have 
And part of the the remit of the Equality Commission is to monitor a statutory obligation to promote equality of opportunity. Um, so I suppose you can see how that's being perceived through a very legal and and rigid approach rather than the more meaningful approach that many normal people would expect it to be. What about you, Sam? I would echo those sentiments and basically go along the lines of, although we are saying that everything is equal and everybody has the same opportunities, what we don't do is provide the backup and the support for those people to take those opportunities that mm -hmm. come along. So we can say there's an equal opportunity for everybody to apply for a, a job in a certain industry. But when we don't provide the training for those kids coming through school, or we don't provide the support for people to attend interviews and give them the mechanisms to apply for that job, it, it, all of this is is, is, a, is we're written on a paper. We're not actually implementing what we say mm -hmm. we're going to do. We we are, and I was at a meeting today, and, and a similar conversation was had that there's a disconnect between the stratospheric stuff where we mm -hmm. where we decide this stuff all looks good, it all sounds perfect. But the actual implementation and enforcement of an ground level, there's no connect there. We, we lose it. And I think that's where you're, you're lost in implementation. It comes clearly through. Um, we have put things in place that we make sure that everybody has the equal opportunity, but then we don't equip people to, to be able to exploit that, to be able to use that and be able to take those steps forward. Yeah, and I suppose there are various barriers as well that maybe aren't as, uh, aren't as recognized. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, from the perspective as someone who lives in a very rural area, you know, I might have the legal uh, opportunity to apply for XYZ job, but the logistical reality of not being able to access public transport, for example, in a rural location actually acts as a barrier to equality of opportunity. And I think that that's something that's replicated across all regions of Northern Ireland in different ways and varying degrees. I'm thinking also about the Northwest uh, who are often forgotten about entirely in terms of dairy. They're still trying to get their university for about 50 years um, and the disadvantage that places on people as well. Speaking about it from um, the perspective of the women's sector, Elaine, what would you say some of the barriers are for women in equality of opportunity? Um, some of those barriers are uh, hidden within other barriers. You mentioned just now the barrier of if you live rurally and you rely on public transport, the opportunity to apply for a job in, let's say, Belfast is not really an opportunity you're going to seize because it might be physiologically impossible to get there on public transport for the time you need to get there. Or it might be so incredibly difficult that you'd be leaving the house at 5 a.m. and getting mm -hmm. home at 8 p.m. or whatever. And it might just not be uh, worthwhile financially as well. Those are uh, amplified for women because women are less likely to have access to a car in rural areas. This is uh, research that Nerwin did, um, the Northern Ireland Rural Women's Network, a few years ago demonstrated most rural families have one car and that one car is driven by the man of the heterosexual family. Um, so women are more likely to be restricted to local jobs. They're also more likely to be doing the child rearing. So therefore, they're the ones who have to do the school run and school pickup, which means they can't be wor working an hour or two hours down the road in Belfast or wherever it may be. But, you know, even uh, so think of any barrier that applies to any person and double it when you're talking about a woman. That's what we mean by intersectionality. By and large, women are less likely to have access to um, the opportunities to work full time outside the home, for example. But also there's additional barriers that, that women are facing because of the fact that they are women. So you've got the discrimination that women face in many workplaces, um, especially male-dominated workplaces, which also not coincidentally happen to be the better paid workplaces. You've got the um, 
barriers that women face associated with uh, childcare and the care of other family members. Women are more likely to be the um, sole or, or main responsible child carer in, in a child's early years. And indeed, after they've started school, um, the one more likely to be doing the school ones and the school pickups and the one who gets the phone calls from the school when they fall on mm-hmm. cut me. I know I still get that call, even though my husband is, is is actually closer to and doesn't work as much as I do. And it has been listed as the first person. I, I've had so many conversations with so many other um, mothers in, in similar positions, they assume Mr. Mother. But that's a trivial thing in the big scheme of things. What I mean is that limits your opportunities, not in law, but in practice. And so if you don't put things in place to amend, to address those barriers, then you're just uh, reinforcing the barriers. For example, we don't have a childcare strategy. We don't have access to uh, the, the hours of childcare that uh, women in where Britain or indeed in the Republic have um, with regards to their children. Now, I will say the hours of childcare because it varies depending on what jurisdiction you happen to find yourself in. One thing that is true is they are all better than Northern Ireland. And it's harder again if you are um, working in a low paid job, which likely will cost the childcare will cost more than you're getting paid. And it's harder again if you're uh, living rurally and there's less childcare providers mm. um, available. So there's there's things like that that have not been put in place that would enable people to overcome those barriers. Mm. Um, it's not just childcare as well. It's elder care and care for um, children who are no longer young children, but who have disabilities that give them a need extra, um, I suppose, care and time and attention. And then there's a million and one other things that you face in the workplace, like pregnancy discrimination, which is still an enormous problem. And as we move towards casualization, you know, um, in other words, you're not getting a, a permanent contract. You're rarely even getting anything more than a one year contract. It's quite easy for if a person goes to their boss and says, I'm pregnant and having a baby in August. Um, the boss will say, oh, that's great. And they won't fire you because that would be illegal. But they can just not renew your contract mm-hmm. and they can just find somebody else to come in on your contract. That is really very, very common. Um, and as we move towards, like I say, casualization, it's women who are most affected. Mm-hmm. Women are more likely to work in lower paid jobs like retail, like service industry jobs. Um, and all of those jobs get less in terms of uh, protections. Um, they're more likely to work part-time hours and therefore they get less protections too. And we saw this really vividly in COVID where many of salespeople went, were put on a furlough scheme and the 80% of their salary that they were paid was a pittance or, or almost nothing. Women are more likely to be in zero-hour contracts. Um, so it's not a legal barrier, if you know what I mean. It's a mm. practical barrier. And because we have um, arranged the world in the way that we've arranged it and failed to address those practical barriers, um, it's impacting women enormously in every area of their work and indeed of their life because it applies to study as well. Um, yep, you mentioned Derry still doesn't have its university 50 years on. So if you're in Derry and you're, you know, struggling to get to university, you're weighing up all of those different things that might uh, go on if you have to move to a city. And if you're earning less to your part-time job or if you've got childcare responsibilities or elder care responsibilities, it's harder for you to make that move away from home and that's more likely to be women. So there's a million and one different things that are make up the reality of women's lives. Mm-hmm. It gets worse and worse if that woman is further marginalized by disability, by her race, by her sexual orientation and so forth and so on. Um, I could go on and on, but uh, I think I've given the gist there. 
Well, I don't know about you two, but it doesn't sound like equality of opportunity to me. Um, I'm also just thinking about the fact that we don't have an anti-poverty strategy and the massive disparity we have between classes here in Northern Ireland. I mean, on that point, Sam, like, what do you think really needs to happen for us to be able to build up our communities to be able to have equality of opportunity? I think the recent survey that they showed that the peace dividend hasn't been there, but even less in working class areas, mm-hmm. is a perfect example of where communities, especially from loyalist communities, that's that's where my podcast mm-hmm. is mostly based, have been banging on this drum for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was always dismissed. But now that the facts are coming through to support their argument, that they have felt this for so long, that the problem I think we're now at is we've left it to fester for 25 years. Mm-hmm. How do we claw that back? Uh, the Good Friday Agreement was sold as a new dawn, a new rise, and we were all going to be moving forward. But a lot of communities were left behind, were just totally cut off. And I, I've said this before, as, as well with you, I, I do not blame individuals. Everybody has a hand in this failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have totally ignored, from, from when we cut out the smaller parties who were involved in the Good Friday Agreement negotiation, we cut away that representation of that community. And when we cut that away, we, we then became reliant on the bigger parties whose real interest is self-interest. We know that. Um, and it's easier to keep us poor and agitated than it would be to, to bring us along and educate us and give us the opportunities that were promised to us. Um, we, 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 taught, we talked to our kids and we, we moved forward with the Good Friday Agreement to move to peace and to give them opportunities. We've moved this sort of pace and we haven't given them any extra opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where we move forward with that is, is the crux of this. I know people are going on about renegotiating the Good Friday Agreement or, or, or doing something with it. I know Billy Hudson gave up uh, uh, an interview with the Irish Times just today around this. We need to take a massive step back and we need to look at this again and we need to see who have we left behind and why have we left them behind because the class division has now opened up and with the cost of living crisis, if you want to call it, because it's been around for a while, mm-hmm. but it's now become accelerated and even more sharply felt. I mean, I can see it in my shopping basket uh, and I'm from a two-income household. If I can see it in my shopping basket, those those people with, with less than two incomes are certainly feeling the pinch and we have done nothing to address it now. If Starman was up and going, would we address it? I'm not 100% sure we would because I think we're incapable of actually doing grown-up politics to a certain extent. Um, I had a great talk with, with Don O'Leary from the Cork Life Centre a while back and what we discussed was if we had Stormont up and running four days a week should be bread and butter issues of education, health, whatever else and one day a week they discussed their sectarian stuff and if they want to collapse it over the sectarian stuff do it in that day. The other four days they turn into work and they get on with the business at hand because at the minute the people on the ground here are suffering are those less capable of sort of withstanding that suffering. Yeah, I mean, the conversation of reform does appear to be getting a bit more traction than it has previously. And I think it's um, coming from that place of frustration where there are, are a lot of pressures that are being felt in communities. And, you know, it's been said a lot, but Stormont has been down for 40% of its lifetime. It's very hard to sell that as a success story. Uh, and I think that Sometimes there can be a reluctance to have this conversation, but in reality, review is built into the Good Friday Agreement. Um, review is a good thing. Uh, it's always good to be able to evolve these kinds of documents. They're not meant to be static. Uh, they should grow and evolve as society does. And clearly, uh, there is a challenge here with implementation. 
it's not necessarily that there's two you know challenges with the agreement itself. It's that those who were tasked with actually delivering on this have not done so in the spirit of what was agreed, and that's where we are at the moment. Um, and, and I know we agree on this, but about had the civic forum side of this agreement been in place those in, in them power would have been held accountable for this by the people on the ground on a more direct basis. And that's maybe why it's not there. Um, they, give, they give people who are involved in business and NGOs and, and the common man and woman on the street the chance mm-hmm. to to put pressure directly, not every four years at election time, um, but on a daily basis or weekly basis towards these politicians may have held it more accountable. We may have seen more movement. Well, that would be precisely why we don't have a civic forum. Um, and actually, if you look at the UK, for example, there's been um, over 30 uh, deliberative assemblies and forums over the last three years alone from everything from climate change to COVID-19 because countries and governments uh, really do see the benefit of having these kinds of deliberative spaces, this kind of engagement with civic society and citizens creating that kind of bridge for dialogue. And yet here in a post-conflict society, oh, no, no couldn't possibly speak with uh, citizens or civic society on these issues. Uh, so we do have a challenge here in terms of creating a more healthy democracy. I think that's the problem we have. It's it's, it's deeply dysfunctional in how it operates. Elaine, what about you? I totally agree. And I agree with just about every word Sam said just there. Um, the one thing I will say is where, you know, where Sam said, like they're incapable of kind of grown up politics. I think they're perfectly capable. I think they're totally unwilling. That's the only thing I agree. <laughs> and right, but like sometimes you you watch the, you watch what's happening, and I think especially in committees which are less public, you know, mm-hmm. but they are all available. But I think they're just less watched, and they're less likely to make the news. Sometimes, you know, I'm truly tearing my hair out, and I'm only barely exaggerating for effect here. Watching the way in which, um. And and again, this is not one party. This is, uh, you know, almost across the board, but it's, you know, some parties more than others. They will obfuscate and they will avoid responsibility for really making any decision on anything. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much that they are incapable of it. It's that they want to avoid it and they want to shove it over somebody else's pile of work so that they take the responsibility and they take the blame. They want all the glory and none of their responsibility sometimes. And we've allowed them to some degree, not we as in you, you know, the three of us here, but we collectively have allowed them to get away with that. And I think I see a lot of um, conversation around civic forums and the idea of a civic forum and our citizens assembly and what that might look like online. And as much as I see people excited about the prospect of what it can bring, I also see a very cynical strain of people saying, oh, it'll all be those boring whinge bads who turn up to everything <laughs> turning up to like hold things up and and talk nonsense and just enjoy the sound of your own voice and blah 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 and you know I'm sympathetic to that view for about one second until you realize that's actually serving the narrative that the people that are sitting there are stuck or as opposed to unwilling to get on with it an awful lot of the time it is I think just pure unwillingness and you know the conversation about class and how some people have been left behind a particularly uh, working class PUL areas but like I'm sitting here in, in West Belfast mm-hmm. and um, you know as much as, as Sinn Féin talk about how much they've brought things on in, and how much they represent this area and they have an absolute chokehold on the electorate if you look at the council votes that are going to come in in a few weeks time mm-hmm. you'll see an awful lot of their reps were elected. You would give the it would give the impression they're bringing this area in the direction in which people want to go. But I'm still seeing endemic poverty and 
uh, a lack of opportunity and a lack of social housing being built and a lack of really any kind of investment in the area that is not done by mostly the people in the area. Now, I'm not saying there's nothing. I'm saying there's much less than there should be for all the trumpeting, uh, blowing up one's own trumpets that goes on in some rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they are, quite a few of these parties are quite willing to keep the working class people as almost an underclass that they call upon. Snapping the fingers off, you get up, you get, you vote, you protest, you whatever it is that's on our list of things for you to do today, as opposed to taking your lead from or listening carefully to the concerns of the working class. Quite a few of larger parties are happy to use them as a set of pawns that they can push in whatever direction suits them. And I think that's why we are trapped where we are. And overall, people maybe feel like that's them listening to them when in actual fact, they're being directed. Yeah, I mean, I live in Fermanagh and Fermanagh and South Road is represented by three Sinn Féin MLAs, one DUP, one um, UUP. And the poverty and deprivation in rural areas here is absolutely shocking. I mean, we have uh, villages that are completely dying off. They don't have a doctor. Um, their schools are closing. Businesses are closing. People are leaving. You know, we have areas that are being able to access Enniskillen with one bus a week. Uh, the public services are atrocious and we also have a situation with the hospital where they're shutting down services and people are having to travel to Derry and Altnagaven. So it's a serious issue in an, in an area like this. And certainly uh, many people would struggle to say that politicians are delivering uh, in this area as they aren't in, in many other parts of Northern Ireland. I hate to bring this up, but I suppose it is worth to mention Brexit in this conversation around equality of opportunity. I'm sorry. I know we're all so fatigued of even the word. Um, but, you know, equality of opportunity in the Good Friday Agreement, uh, it's meant to be equality of opportunity between the two main communities. Now, I would challenge that language uh, 25 years on because I don't think that we are two main communities in Northern Ireland anymore. But you know, there's a challenge around the fact that Brexit means that Irish and British citizens do legally have a different set of rights. Those who carry an Irish passport have a different set of rights to those who carry a British passport. And that does fundamentally kind of hit at the heart of equality of opportunity, even if it does just mean that those who have a British passport have to stand longer in a line to get into Spain. But it is something that does impact on the agreement. And then obviously we have the um, the funding challenges, uh, you know, with the European Social Fund ending and the replacement funding coming from the UK government, which is not like for like. Uh, we have seen a situation where many community-based organizations are having to let go of staff who have been working in their communities for a very long time. And I don't know about anybody else, but I find that deeply, deeply upsetting. Uh, to see people who've been working for decades in their community now losing their jobs due to a lack of funding. You know, we're hitting the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and it can feel sometimes like the role of civic society is is pretty left out here in terms of the contribution it makes to the peace process. What's your thoughts on the B word, Sam? Um, I would love to say that I've seen this coming and I told everybody so. Um, but, but as I said to Tony and Martin on, on the pod with them guys, it, I, I voted to remain because I didn't. They didn't explain to me what Brexit was looked like. I, I didn't know what was coming. The detail wasn't there, and I, it's panned that that's that's the case. Um, when I was talking to family members who were sort of pro Brexit, at that point I asked them to walk up the Shankill Road and look in each of the windows of the likes of uh, the community groups, and uh, many of them had European stickers in the windows mm-hmm. that said that the funding came. And I explained to them that funding was going to be cut. Um, 
they agreed that it would be, but they also harked back to the promises made by the Prime Minister at the time that that money would be matched. Mm-hmm. Well, the, I mean, this, the guy at the time, I think he was a serial cheater, um, making those promises. I, I don't see why the trust was put there. I don't see why the trust was put in Tory Barry full stop. That's that's just my position. But um, that funding has disappeared. And now, on top of everything else that's going on in this place, we're going to see the loss of <laughs> essential services. You know, it, it's, people are losing their jobs, and that's, that is horrific. And they're going to take that money that they earn put back into the community through their wages and through their spending. That's going to be lost. But for every one of those community workers, there was probably 10 service unit users, and they're now going to lose that service too. This impact is going to be financial, it's going to be mental health, it's going to be physical health. This is going to be across the board. Mm-hmm. And again, those that can less sustain more loss are the ones who are going to feel this the most. Mm-hmm. And Brexit, can we curse this show? Can we allow it to use? Can I, can I say that? I... Okay, well, the shit show of the highest order. Um, we... We entrusted the negotiation to people who we don't trust, who have never proven their, their worth to us. Um, they've made an absolute farce of it and then turned around and blamed everybody else for it and called my community on board to support them in this phony war against the EU for whatever reason, for the mess that they created, for the for the mess that they negotiated and left the table with. You know, it's... I, if the deal, the deal was so bad that they shouldn't have signed it, it should have been the end of that. But the deal was acceptable to them. They just didn't know how they were going to sell the us. Mm-hmm. And now they're backtracking and they can blame the bogeyman in the corner and move on with it. Brexit from day one has been divisive. It has been a mess and it has been filled with inaccuracies and outright, outright mm-hmm. lies. Well, how do you feel about that, Elaine? Um, I, I agree with pretty much everything Sam has said. And, and what I will add was would be, I suppose, from the beginning, it was very clear when the Brexit debate was going on that they, it was basically an argument that was set up between the main parties in Britain. So mm-hmm. the Conservatives, Labour, to some degree the Lib Dems, um, and obviously the, the ever-present at that time UKIP, but Nigel Farage and, and that kind of um, outfit, let's say, because I know he's changed clothes a few times since... But the same kind of set of arguments. It was occasional input from the SNP, but very occasional. By and large, it was set up as an English thing. Mm. And it really is an English project that never really understood this place. Mm. The fragility of of the arrangements, the nature of the border. Um, I don't think there was any really sincere conversation about what they would do about the border and, and how they would manage the fact that there would be a land frontier about 300 miles long with the EU until after the vote had happened. Anybody from here talking about it who raised that alarm was conveniently dismissed because this is really an argument for the adults in the room and could the children go sit at the children's table? And we, along with you know Scotland and Wales as well, were very much treated like the children in the room, constantly raising complaints over the texture of their chicken nuggets as opposed to just letting the adults get on with the serious stuff. And then time passes, it turns out, oh, surprise, it actually is a problem. And again, those same adults in massive scare quotes go off over to Europe and negotiate a deal that they come back and say, oh, this is amazing. Wait till you see it. It's just fantastic. Turns out it's not amazing. More problems arise. There was no point at which the people here from the ordinary Joe or Jane on the street right up to the first minister and in between was ever going to get a look in in those negotiations. So, of course, the various sensitivities and concerns of this place didn't get listen to 
And I do think it was the biggest mistake of anybody's um, political, I suppose, strategy um, if, for parties in Northern Ireland to get behind that. And I include you know, not more than one party in Northern Ireland who got behind that and who did not really necessarily have a good, solid answer for what was going to happen in practice if it if it passed. And um, they've, in, in the case of one of those parties, they've painted themselves into an enormous mess. And it is a real dog's dinner at this stage. And like you say, Sam, they've tried to pull along the community with them. They're, they're a community, again, scare quotes, that again, is largely treated as a possession that you pick up and drop where, if and when you want to. Um, tried to pull them along with them. Um, have not really particularly given them an exit strategy or given them any kind of constructive um, conversation on this and actually try to shut them down if they raise any questions against the party strategy. So they're really only there to be used as a pawn and not really to provide any input. And that's where we are in the kind of really unpleasant mess we're in, where these voices have risen that are non-party political and not necessarily representative of the community, but can coherently to somebody from the outside paint themselves as representative of the community because nobody's actually asking the community directly. And politicians are known to lie about what the actual community actually feel about whatever the issue is, pick an issue, any issue. Um, so it's allowed a really dangerous atmosphere to grow. And talking about loss of funding, um, I'm very aware that many, many organizations in the women's sector have lost some or all of their funding overnight. Hmm. And um, I'm also very aware that that EU fund, or sorry, funding from the um, Shared Prosperity Fund, ironically named actually, um, did come to some organizations in the women's sector, but it is very carefully targeted. So it cannot be used. It's not just not like for like in terms of 50p is now what a, used to be a pound. So you've got roughly half. It's also concentrated on particular kinds of organizations doing particular kinds of work, mm -hmm. which is all good and valuable. But all those other organizations that were doing this sometimes life-saving work, uh, gone. So oh, very often those are the ones people came to when they've just had their baby and they don't have a clue what they're doing and they just want to talk to another adult, any adult. Mm -hmm. Or it's the place where people go to when they maybe are thinking about the child's getting up a little bit now. I can use the childcare facilities in that part of the building and I can take my... GCSE maths, which I didn't get in school or whatever it is, that kind of stuff that's not targeted towards jobs and employment and paying tax and, you know, helping the government share prosperity. Um, it's it's not get, it's not valued. It never has been valued. And that's mm -hmm. the whole thing about the women's sector is there to do the work that's essential, but not valued. And now that's been uh, absolutely cut off at the knees. And I'm so angry. I can, I'm, I can almost feel tears welling up now. I'm just angry at the whole mess because it was never done in consultation with or was even an ear towards the communities here that would be affected. And the people who went gung-ho behind it now have to answer for that. But the worst part is we've cut off every mechanism, the civic forum and whatever else that would have actually made it answerable. Even we can't even give uh, questions to MLAs to ask in committees because there's no committees. So yeah, I'm waiting. <laughs> Oh, God. Well, I think we're we're going to have to try and bring this um, episode full circle back into some kind of positive uh, ending here. Let's talk about um, what what can be done to make real the concept of equality of opportunity. I mean, we've talked about how there's a legal duty here, but it's not working in practice. Um, 
What do you think we need? What do you think needs to happen aside from the fact that we really, you know, as a first point of call, we could do with a government? Uh, Sam, what has to happen after that? I think I think the first thing that we need to do is rediscover the spirit of the agreement. There, I've already talked about mm-hmm. the spirit of the agreement, but there was a genuine will at that time to end the suffering of the people in those communities. Because let's be honest, ninety percent of the problems went on went on between the working class communities are, are those where the people directly affected. And I'm I'm talking about also that they were the they were the guys carrying out these operations and going to jail. They were ripping families apart for whatever reason. You can look at ideology later on, but at that level, we we, we wanted the, the end to suffering of the families and the people of those areas. And there was a genuine drive towards to do that. And the spirit was there that we, we weren't going to get what we wanted, but we were willing to give something to help, to, to, to have a spirit of coming together. Both sides would give and we would have relative peace. I think we need to get back to that level of of trust, which is sadly lacking. Uh, we also need to find a few leaders from somewhere to replace the ones we had at that time, because I think that's a big mm-hmm. loss. That we, there's, there's individuals who are no longer on the stage who at that point pulled people with them. They, they led. Um, they didn't direct people. They, they led them. They, they took the steps and they pulled people with them in those directions. I think we need to get back to that stage. If we get back to a willingness on all sides, an honest willingness on all sides, sorry, to, to, to do something to rectify the situation that we're in, then we've got a chance. Mm. But unless we find unless we find that willingness, because at the minute we're, we're, we're moving to people on social media who, who are banging drums that don't necessarily represent everybody else, but their drums are loud. And that is really drowning out the sensible figures out there, the mm-hmm. sensible voices, the common voices. Um, but those other leaders would have would have rose above that. We don't have that. Other, and I'm not being derogatory towards the current leaders at there, but they're just not they're just not leading. You know, th- there are quite a few of them there at the minute who are extremely quiet considering the situation that we're in. They have chosen to say nothing for whatever reason. Um, yeah, it, it, we've got leaders that are here being through the dog being wiped by the tail. Well, I've got other leaders who are quite happy to sit back because their political agenda is being met without having to actually do anything about it. There, there, there's a whole lot planning that I said, what we need is to actually look at the people in the community, look them in the face and say, what do you need and how do you want us to get there? And what they're going to say is, get some sort of government, get the funding back in, let's sort out education, let's give my kid a job, let's, mm-hmm. let's look at what we're going to lose from our society because we are going to start to lose people again. And it, yeah. it may not may not be due to sectarian killings, but it's going to be down the other reason, whether it's malnutrition, whether it's cold in the winter, whether it's uh, mental health issues. We, we are we are slowly circling the dream. So mm-hmm. I think we get back to the positive because I'm being very negative. <laughs> we get back to the positive, but what we need to find is the spirit of 96, 97. Again, I know we all talk about the spirit of 98 when it was signed, but there was a lot of work up until that point. There was a lot of meat sale. There was a lot of people who had to be persuaded and negotiated with and I think we need to get to that stage where we have that openness that honesty and that that ability to empathize with our kind of marks I think that's where we need to be if we want to get this back on the road again yeah I think that's a good point to bring up about leadership because you know this period particularly for the 25th anniversary there's so much looking backwards to 1996 97 98 lots of great documentaries to watch lots of great footage to look at lots of great interviews to go back on I saw the uh, Beyond Belief musical in um, in Derry, and it was really incredible. It was very emotional and actually did a really good job of showing the personal impact 
uh, of taking those kinds of risks at that time, the leadership that was shown uh, by so many of the political leaders at that time from all sides, really, and you look to what we have today uh, with no functioning government, it is kind of a bit of a depressing depressing outlook. I do think we are missing a little bit of that now. A little bit. I think we're missing, we've lost something along the way. I think we're missing our ambition around this peace process. Elaine, what about you? I totally agree with both both yourself and Sam have said. Uh, leadership is a huge part of it. And not just leadership as in bringing the people you're representing along with you, but also taking your uh taking your your lead really from the community. So you're there as an actor, if you will, but also the generosity of spirit, because one of the things I remember most from that time, and I was in, you know, coming to the end of secondary school, I was 18 when the Good Friday Agreement was signed, just gone. Uh, and I distinctly remember the way in which people from teachers to people in the community, to my parents, to my peers, spoke about the leaders of the quote unquote other community. Mm-hmm. And with uh, with almost no exceptions, it was with respect, huge mm-hmm. amount of respect for what they had done, for the sacrifices they had made and for the difficult, difficult calls they had made. And um, they knew and understood that that was true because they knew and understood it was true for their leaders as well. And that everybody had taken a blow to maybe their ego, but a, certainly a, a, some really, really tough decisions that they were going to have to sell to people. And then they went out and they sold it. Um, in in almost all cases, and um, took the consequences on the chin, whatever those consequences might be. Oh, you're a traitor! You're a you know whatever it was. There was a degree of respect there, whether you agree or disagree with any of them. So I think that's been gone. That's been gone for a while. It didn't go um, immediately, but it went quite quickly. And I think that by the time you got a more embedded government, there was there was deep suspicion on on all sides and a lack of respect, a lack of ability to see the other person as doing their best. And very often it's because they weren't doing their best anymore. They put their absolute best in the late 90s. Many of those leaders now gone, many of them now dead. And we haven't had the same kind of courage from leaders since. But also, I think many of us got quite used to being, I mean, I, when I think of what people lived through and how difficult it was, mm. And it must have been horrendous. Um, but now people are still living through hard times. You know, like almost one in four children lives in poverty, slightly more in some areas like dairy and parts of Belfast. Um, suicide is an incredibly, um, more people have died by suicide than died during the troubles since the, the Good Friday Agreement. Um, and that's getting worse year on year. It's, you know, there was a street I lived in, I don't live in it anymore, but a little while ago, where there were three funerals of young men in the space of about two months. And I mean young men, like teenagers, really. And it's it's just becoming um, another another way in which we're decimating ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I know we're trying to do this optimistic thing at the end, but I would really like for us collectively as, as people, um, whatever background we're from, to try and find some of that spirit among each other as well. And try to, if, if our leaders won't lead us, lead them or push them if necessary, and, and replacing with leaders who will lead. Because there's no shortage of people out there. I could make a list right now of people who are not elected representatives or who are elected representatives, but not of the, these these leaders of these parties who could pull us in the right direction. Mm. And I think that we choose our leaders. And at some point, we have to take some kind of collective responsibility for how we're allowing ourselves to be led. And we have to take seriously 
what happens when we go into a ballot box and take seriously what happens when they let us down in between vote A and vote B and hold them responsible when they come knocking your door or at any in any other way that you can. Go out on strike, join your trade union, get involved as much as you can and com- completely every single day try to embody that spirit that our leaders and that ourselves and the people who voted yes in, in May or in the summer of, of 1998 um, did in saying, I know this isn't easy. This is not a, a simple choice. This is an emotional struggle for many people who had to really push down some real concerns and say, I'm going with the positive, not the negative. I think it's time for us to to try to grab that spirit back for ourselves as well as our leaders. Well, I think that's a pretty positive note, Elaine, actually to, to end on. I think it's easy, perhaps, in the political climate that we have to lose sight of the agency that we actually hold as individuals and as communities here. And it would be great if we can try to reclaim that a little bit and uh, remember the power that all of us have to affect meaningful change, be that at the ballot or within your own community or through joining a union or any of those things. There's just so many ways that you can be an active citizen and try to uh, build up your community in that process. I want to thank you both uh, for this conversation. It was really a great crack and also uh, really a good window into the the realistic uh, on the ground uh, impact that we're facing in Northern Ireland. Uh, and when we speak about equality of opportunity, you know, it really is something that hasn't been effectively delivered for, for many people across Northern Ireland. And we talk about that spirit of the agreement. I think it's right that we have to try and get back to that. The spirit of mutual understanding, equality and generosity of spirit is something that people um, really believed in in 1998. And we have to try to find a way to get back to that. Thank you both so much. And thank you to everyone for tuning in for this episode of Lost in Implementation. We'll be back with more. A special shout out to Tony for producing and the Tupper Shack for having us. Thank you.